this week, soldier on past retirement or give it all up to travel the world? If I were stuck at home, I would be more on my own, uh, weeding my leaks. A microchip that learns like the human brain. We don't really know what's happening inside, and eventually the system kind of magically converges. Plus, a new species found in a deep sea vent shakes the branches of the tree of life. This is the Nature Podcast for May the 7th, 2015. I'm Kerry Smith. And I'm Adam Levy. The computer in your laptop or phone works completely differently to the computer in your head. There are over 80 billion neurons in the human brain, and each neuron is connected to thousands of others by synapses. This intricate network can store and process information. For computers, on the other hand, information is normally stored and processed in different places, which can really slow things down. But why not build a computer modelled on the human brain? That's exactly what researchers are starting to do, making use of a device called a memrista, which works a lot like an artificial synapse. Now, a team led by Dmitry Strukov of University of California, Santa Barbara, have shown that such a computer can recognise a 3 by 3 pixel pattern. Wait, 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 Adam, nine pixels? Well, I for one welcome our new robot overlords. Yes, well, the chip isn't programmed to recognise these patterns. It has to learn by itself. Plus, it's really early days for this type of technology. The hope is that the chip could easily be scaled up. But what use would a brain-like chip have in the first place? I called Dmitry Strukov and he gave me a couple of examples. I can recognise faces of very high fidelity very quickly and uh, consuming just a fraction of power uh, or, or you know, energy uh, if, as compared to, let's say, a best algorithm for face recognition running on a computer. We want to build systems which closely mimic the structure of a brain to, let's say, implement exactly the same task, and hopefully it will lead to much better energy efficiency. So would this just allow us to do tasks that computers can already do better and faster, or would it open up avenues for completely different tasks? I guess it's both. So it's definitely the hope is it will improve performance of certain applications which we do better, but... Uh, definitely there are many other applications like, you know, complicated cognitive tasks, decision-making, planning, which uh, I think we're just starting to get into. What technology are you using here that hasn't really been used before? So we use uh, memristors, also known under the name of resistive switching, and you can change conductivity of that thin film by applying uh, uh, electrical stress. On a functional level, you change this memory state, not kind of in a discrete way, but there is a whole spectrum. You can change it continuously, and synapses are in some sort uh, similar to that. So synapses are also memory devices. So it seems like memristors capture some of the essential elements of synapses. And here in this paper, you used memristors to make a sort of brain-inspired chip. What were you able to do with this, uh, with this device? You have we we build a it's kind of array of memristors and we could apply an image. These were uh, stylized letters uh, X N and V, and we could get you know the output which is a the class uh, to which the particular image you're applying to the input belongs to. By itself, it's not very exciting kind of task recognizing images three by three images. What we showed again we showed a uh, we can do it in a very different way, uh, which would be suitable for you know, neural networks and which would eventually lead to much 
better energy efficiency and a compact systems. Did you program the chip to recognize these letters or is that something it was kind of designed to learn to do? Yeah, well, that was a part of experiment itself. Basically, by increasing the weight of our memristor, uh, you know, you increase the synaptic weight, which is you can think is very similar to, you know, increasing the strength of the synaptic connection in in a biological network. I should know that in this case we don't really know what's happening inside and eventually the system kind of magically converges. So this was really kind of interesting black box kind of experiment, very exciting experiment. For the human brain and the visual cortex, how much is pre-programmed and how much is learnt? This is actually an excellent question and this is kind of what uh, critics of all this work, let's say, of, of creating this, you know, artificial human brains are often refer to that there is already so much pre-built functionality that it would be hard to reproduce. Right. So, and they give, for example, uh, they give examples like, uh, you know, some birds. They have to fly right away, otherwise they would be, they would just die. Uh, we already have useful applications, and we working towards creating efficient hardware for these useful applications. Now, will that lead eventually to, you know, something more complex like human brain? Okay, we will see. We have to learn a lot. What do you think the next steps for these kind of chips are? Just making them bigger or would you add complexity to the designs? So what we showed, just to give you kind of perspective, we showed a, a, a system with 100 synapses roughly. So human brain has 10 to the 15 synapses. A huge portion of that brain uh, is devoted to visual cortex. So in order to achieve similar kind of, let's say, classification uh, as a human brain can do, so we have, I don't know, at least nine orders of gap, you know, in complexity. So we have to scale it up. Do you think we'll get to a stage where chips like this exist in our phones and in our computers? I think it's very possible. Yeah, I mean, we're working on that technology. Uh, definitely, it will be, they will complement. I mean, nothing will replace the technology which we already have. There are definitely some applications which neuromorphic chips will never do better than what we have already. So that's why it will be more like a synergy between the two. That was Dmitry Strukov. For more info on this new brain light chip, go to nature.com for the full paper. Coming up in the research highlights, pharaohs and fjords. And in the news chat, two new papers and a new book approach the enduring question, will we ever clone a woolly mammoth? But first, Sharmini Bandel meets two scientists taking different approaches to retirement. As life expectancy in the UK increases, so does the age you can retire and collect your pension. But as a feature in this week's Nature discusses, for a lot of scientists, hitting retirement age doesn't mean giving up science. Take Peter Lawrence. He studies developmental genetics in fruit flies. He's 73, but still hard at work here at Cambridge University. OK. So this is the lab. This is where I'm based in here. And these are the tubes of flies that we're studying at the moment. And these are all masses of larvae, actually. So tens of thousands of slides up here. It's all boxes piled yeah. up on shelves. Huge, yeah. So this is slide number 19,700 we're up to, more or less. And I go back to Nord, and that would have been in about 1962 when I started research. This represents uh, 50 years. Peter has headed this lab ever since he had to retire from his previous position. At the time, UK employees could be made to retire once they hit 65 for men or 60 for women. Late 2004, early 2005, 
I realized that something that I'd known a long time, I was coming up to be 65 years old. And the um, division I was in, the MRC, made it clear to me that the only way I could stay in the building was if I settled down in a kind of old person's annex, I guess, and went gently to seed. I wasn't so keen on that. The UK laws have changed now to match the US and other countries where you can't fire someone purely on the basis of age. Age discrimination was banned in employment after 1st of October 2006. But in practice, it hasn't worked out that way. In Europe, we still have this idea that work is something you want to give up as soon as possible. And that idea still carries on, so people think of it as a privilege not to work. But people vary a lot in this, in their attitude to work. Everybody's different. Without compulsory retirement, the average age of researchers is shifting up. In some US universities, up to a third of academics are now aged 60 or over. Some people worry that old age academics are clogging up the system. I asked Peter if he was worried that there wouldn't be enough jobs left for the younger generations. But he thinks the same concerns were raised when women first started working. The old idea was that when women started looking for jobs, they used to say the breadwinner was the man, and therefore the, the jobs should first be given to the breadwinner. If there's any left over, and there was thought to be a finite number of those, they might go to the odd woman. But we know now that's stupid. If it isn't the way things work, the jobs aren't fixed by some finite rule, that the activity of the people in a community is um, flexible. So um, the, same th- the same argument can't be used against old people either. Peter is certainly working hard. In the last five years, his group has published 16 papers and a book. But, I've got to say, the idea of not having to go to work every day is pretty tempting too. I play music, I probably walk seven or eight miles a day. Even if it's wet, I can trudge along the seafront. This is Tom Sanders. He was Professor of Nutrition and Dietetics at King's College London for 20 years before deciding to give it up just shy of his 65th birthday. Now he lives on England's south coast. When I come to London, I pop into work to pick up stuff and see people. But I normally try and tie it with a a trip to the theatre. Tom retired six months ago. Today he's back in London for the viva of one of his students. But he has time for a walk around St James's Park first. It's quite nice actually in London. I I love walking through here and I do it. That's the difference. I'm not in a rush now to to get into work, to get behind my desk. So if I'm going in, you know, I can... I get off at Victoria and then walk down to Waterloo, and it's really lovely, actually. Tom doesn't seem to regret giving up work. A few years ago, someone asked me, well, you know, would I be a, a chair of a trustees of a charity I was involved with? I said, no, I'm planning, I'm planning a big trip when I retire, you know. And I went surfing on the North Shore of Hawaii, uh, and there was serious surf up there. I went to New Zealand, and... North and South Island, a lot of trekking, walking, get a bit of sunshine to make some vitamin D. (laughs) Nice work if you can get it. But even for Tom, who's taking full advantage of his free time, there's still always time for some more science. I'm still, I'm uh, editing a book at the moment. I'm reviewing papers for journals. I'm writing papers. Um, I just published a paper today. So you haven't given up science completely then? No, no. You you need to keep your mind active and there are lots of things to do. When you retire, it doesn't mean to say you're you're finished. You keep doing what you want to do. I'm I'm a nutritionist and I will continue to be a nutritionist. Perhaps more than in other jobs, scientists often don't want to give up their life's passion. And there are plenty of reasons why they shouldn't. Peter Lawrence. I think it's, it's like anyone who does research 
has always found that interesting from a child, really, and so it doesn't sort of stop that interest. So I like going on trying to just understand things. Another aspect is the community aspect. That, you know, I mean, if I were stuck at home, um, then I wouldn't have the contact that I have now with all the young people and uh, students and, and undergraduates and graduate students and postdocs, and, and the contact I have with them is very important for me. I would be more on my own, uh, weeding my leaks. And that, that does tend to pall. I mean, I know, because I weed leaks a lot. You know, there's a limit to how much you want to do it. You want to vary life if you can. So even for those who decide to retire early and jet off around the world surfing and birdwatching, retirement doesn't mean losing interest in science altogether. But either way, it's a big decision, says Tom, and it's nice to have the choice. It was quite scary, actually, the approaching date of retirement. Or would I be switched off, cease to exist as the thing? But, I mean, there is life after retirement, and I'm, re- I'm really enjoying it. That was Tom Sanders, recently retired from King's College London, and before him, Peter Lawrence at Cambridge University. For The Nature Podcast, I'm Sharmini Bundell, still some way away from retirement. Now it's time for the best science from elsewhere. It's the Research Highlights with Noah Baker. Fjords play a supersized role in the global carbon cycle. These deep, long seas soak up five times more carbon than ocean sediment, the next biggest carbon absorber. Researchers took new measurements of the sediment at the bottom of fjords and combined them with previous results. Fjords cover less than half a percent of the world's surface, though they are set to multiply as glaciers melt around the world. This could buffer some of the carbon dioxide we're currently emitting into the atmosphere. But don't get complacent. Fjords alone can't come close to sponging up all our emissions. For the full paper, see Nature Geoscience. A study of the height of Egyptian mummies suggests husbands and wives were brothers and sisters. Historical accounts say that Egyptian pharaohs often marry their own sisters, but that's hard to verify. One method would be to sequence DNA preserved in mummies, but this damages them. Instead, researchers in Switzerland just measured mummies' heights. They found that noble Egyptian men varied less in height than commoners did, and were taller on average. Since height is a strongly genetically linked trait, the researchers suggest that royal Egyptians were more inbred than commoners, supporting the suggestion of sisterly spouses. More in the American Journal of Physical Anthropology. When many people think of the tree of life, they probably imagine plants, animals and fungi. But these complex organisms are actually just one branch of a much bigger tree, made of much smaller things. There are in fact three branches. Complex stuff, called eukaryotes. They have large cells with nuclei and other inner workings. They're on one branch. And two branches are simpler stuff, bacteria and archaea. Both bacteria and archaea are prokaryotes, simple organisms with small cells and no nucleus. Now, exactly how the complex branch, eukaryotes, came into being is a much debated topic. One leading theory is that some simple cells just simply merged, together making a new, more complex organism. But who swallowed whom isn't clear. Scientists studying all these groups have spied some similarities between archaea and eukaryotes, and because of evidence like this, they think that maybe the swallower was an archaean. Now researchers from Uppsala University in Sweden have discovered a new group of archaea, which might be the culprits. The group is called the Loki Archaeota, and Noah Baker caught up with author Tice Etimer, who started by explaining where they found these novel little beasts. 
we were looking in deep sea sediments that were located uh, some, some 10 kilometers away from hydrothermal vents. What did you find then in these Loki Archaeota, which, which really excited you? Um, so when we retrieved the first genome data and we started closing in on, on this Loki Archaeum, um, initially we thought uh, there's something really weird. Uh, we have some kind of contamination in our, in our sample because we started finding eukaryotic genes and um, we knew, because we, we checked, that there should be no eukaryotes in these environmental samples from these deep marine sediments. Yet we saw these eukaryotic genes. Um, so we thought this either is a contamination or this is something really interesting. So we had to convince ourselves with a number of, of, of thorough tests that these genes that we started seeing, these eukaryotic genes, that they, they actually belong to this uh, Loki archaeota. And when we started looking a little bit closer into these uh, eukaryotic genes that we found, it turned out that they were a very uh, specific subset of eukaryotic genes. And this was extremely exciting, of course. These, these genes turned out to be involved in sort of uh, membrane deformation activities. These genes have never been found outside of eukaryotic genomes in prokaryotes and in, um, in, in bacteria, for instance. And when you say membrane deformation activities, essentially that's all involved with the ability to hold little packages of stuff inside cells. And that's definitely a eukaryotic trait. So, so could you go so far as to say that these genes, this, this new group, provide a sort of missing link between eukaryotes and prokaryotes? Well, in a way, you could, in, in a popular scientific way, of course, you could say that. I mean, I think um, if you really look at the term missing link, I think this should be something that, that lived somewhere back in time. I mean, it could be a last common ancestor between archaea and eukaryotes. So this is a, an organism that lives today. So it's, it's a descendant of the last common ancestor of archaea and eukaryotes, perhaps. But it has retained characteristics of this last common ancestor. And what is very interesting is that we now can say that this ancestor, this archaeal ancestor of eukaryotes, might have already been somewhat complexer than we thought before. So it had these eukaryotic genes that, that uh, are typically affiliated with cellular complexity. And these we now find for the first time in Archaea. You've called your, your new lineage of Archaea Loki. Why Loki? So Loki Archaeota were discovered uh, some 10 or 15 kilometers away from a hydrothermal vent known as Loki's Castle. But apart from, uh, the, let's say, the sampling site, I think uh, there was also the reference to the, the Nordic god Loki, uh, who was a, a trickster. And this somehow reflects also a little bit the field of the uh, the field of eukaryogenesis, the, the field of the origin of eukaryotes. People uh, often do not agree agree with each other, and there is a lot of debate uh, in in this sense. So these are the the untrustworthy archaea. I, I hope at least that that our uh, that, that our data is trustworthy. I mean, for sure, I think this will not be the end of the debate. I think there's much more out there than meets the eye, and perhaps we'll find something in the, in the future that might even be more spectacular and, and tell us even more about how eukaryotes uh, came about. That was Thijs Etimer speaking to Noah Baker. News time now, and joining me in the studio is reporter Ewan Calloway. Hi, Ewan. Howdy. You've been writing about a new paper that's just turned up on the BioArchive uh, preprint server, so not yet published in a journal, available online, and it's all about cataloguing mammoth genes and elephant genes. 
Yeah. I mean, first and foremost, this paper is a very high-quality sequence of the woolly mammoth genome. Uh, same thing was published by another group a couple weeks ago in Current Biology. Uh, what this group decided to do with these very high-quality genomes was to ask what genes were different between woolly mammoths and their nearest living relative, Asian elephants, that could have made woolly mammoths able to survive in the Arctic as opposed to the Indian subcontinent. And what was the aim of their research? Was it just a sort of academic exercise in seeing what the differences were, or did they have other motives? Well, I mean, it, there's this really fascinating question. Asian elephants and woolly mammoths share a common ancestor that lived five million years or so ago, around one or two million years ago. The ancestors of woolly mammoths took to the Arctic and developed all these adaptations. They've got long, thick fur. Um, they've got layers and layers of fat. Their blood is designed to work better at cold temperatures. And it's just kind of an interesting evolutionary question. What is the genetic basis for this phenomenal change? Of course, there are other angles to woolly mammoth genomics. And I spoke with Beth Shapiro, who's a geneticist at the University of California in Santa Cruz, uh, who knows all about this. If we wanted to do this not to bring mammoths back, but to create elephants that were able to live in cooler climates, then this is exactly the kind of data that we would need to know how to do that. Now, Beth, of course, has just written a book called How to Clone a Mammoth. And she means, presumably by this comment about elephants in colder climates, she means to genetically prepare elephants for for the cold. You know, long, give them a long, woolly coat, maybe teach them to make fire. Lots of people have had this dream about bringing mammoths back through cloning. And initially, this dream was predicated on the idea that somewhere frozen in the Arctic, there would be a mammoth carcass that had, if not a live cell uh, that was frozen, but at least like an entire genome, a whole set of chromosomes that you could pluck and put into uh, a living elephant cell and create uh, basically woolly mammoths. But people have told me that that, that ain't going to happen. The DNA has been frozen for thousands of years. It's shredded to pieces. And so the other route of going about this is to basically take an Asian elephant cell and edit the DNA until you get woolly mammoth DNA. And there's more than one, one million DNA differences between an Asian elephant and a woolly mammoth. So that's a lot of gene editing. So a shortcut could be that you could identify the woolly mammoth genes that are most important for its ability to survive in the Arctic and put just those into an Asian elephant cell. What does the new work add to our picture of what these genes actually would be and what their functions actually are? In some sense, it's obvious. Um, woolly mammoths lived in the Arctic, and Asian elephants live in the tropics. And the genes that they found that had changed between the two were genes that were involved in putting on fat, which makes a lot of sense. Um, there are genes involved in hair and skin growth. Uh, interestingly, there were genes involved in circadian rhythms, uh, which is kind of a bit odd, but if you think about it, You've got an animal, the woolly mammoths, living in the Arctic where you've got 24-hour 24 24-hour days during the summer and constant darkness at times during the winter. And so you can't, be, you can't set your biological clock to the sun-up, sun-down schedule. So you need to become independent of it. And that's something that's been seen in other Arctic-dwelling animals such as, such as reindeer. The overarching question of can mammoths be brought back to life just won't go away, will it? No, I think it's something that we're just 
it really, really fascinated in. And just bringing anything back to life, this whole field called de-extinction, which is really what uh, Beth Shapiro's book is about. And even if we had a big catalogue of all the genes that were different and we could do all of the editing, could we make these things? No, is, is the short answer. I mean, we're simply not able to introduce even more than a dozen or so uh, gene alterations into a cell at once. But then you're up against uh, reproductive biology. We know next to nothing about elephant, let alone woolly mammoth reproductive biology. And that's, that, that's really the big challenge to doing some of this. And then there are also these ethical issues like Asian elephants that are critically endangered. Should we involve them in this moonshot program when we could spend our resources conserving the habitat that does exist? Seeing as how Beth Shapiro has, has written a book about the recipe for cloning a mammoth, I, I double-checked with her to see if, if she thinks it's actually going to be possible soon. And this is what she said. No, it's not currently possible to bring any species that's extinct and has been for a long time back to life. I probably should have called the book How One Might Go About Cloning a Mammoth Should It Become Technically Possible and If It Were In Fact a Good Idea, which it's probably not. But that was a much less compelling title. Beth Shapiro throwing cold water on the idea of mammoth cloning. Find a review of her book at nature.com slash news slash books and arts, all one word, and find Ewan's write-up of those two mammoth genome papers at nature.com slash news. That's all from us. We'll be back next time with more science fun and games. I'm Adam Levy. And I'm Kerry Smith.